Hey, it's Joey Thurman. I'm excited to bring you season two of the Fad or Future podcast. We live in a world where information is everywhere, easy to access, and sometimes not always accurate, especially in the health and wellness space, which is exactly why I created this show. There's two sides to every story, and I'm here to present both and let you decide, is it a fad or is it the future? Health fads come and go, but the science behind them is what makes them work or fail. I'm bringing the experts to you and putting the facts on the table so you can decide how and where to put your efforts in your own personal health and wellness journey. Thank you to Third Wheel Podcast Studio in LA for the great editing work on our show every week. If you're ever in LA and need a studio to use, they have full audio and video capabilities and awesome engineers. They also have a Seattle location coming soon. And of course, if you're just looking for production and editing, they have you covered there too. Check them out online at thirdwheelpodcaststudio.com. All right, guys, what's up? It's Joey Thurman. Here's another episode of the Fat or Future Podcast. In front of me, the living legend, Stan Efferding, IFBB Pro, and the strongest IFBB Pro around and creator of the Vertical Diet, Stan Efferding. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And also, thank you for sending me the Vertical Diet. As a lot of people know, I try out all sorts of crazy things from doing ketamine therapy to diets to all sorts of workouts. And the Vertical Diet, I actually did for five weeks. So this was the longest guinea pig experiment that I've done. And I'm actually pretty much on it right now to this day. And I sent you my before and after pictures and all that sort of stuff. But uh, first off, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm looking forward to hear how everything went. <laughs> I know I was, I, was, I was tagging you on everything and the vertical diet as, as I went, went along. But the last two weeks, I purposely didn't put as much on there because I want people to be able to tune in the, into this and check it out a lot more. So uh, tell me a little bit about it yourself. I mean, you, you're IFBB pro. So people that don't know, IFBB is just the biggest federation for bodybuilding, correct? Yeah, it is. It's, uh, I think, about the only real international federation that matters now and has for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally a big time. I think people probably think of back in the days of Arnold Schwarzenegger and that's, I mean, he, I don't know if he necessarily put them on the map, but I think that's what people think of when they think of Schwarzenegger. And um, a lot of people might not be aware, but professional bodybuilders aren't necessarily training for as much strength as possible, but for you, you are the strongest IFBB pro. And, and how do you quantify that? Well, I'm, I set an all-time world record in powerlifting. And so as far as what's been recorded on the platform, I certainly have the highest free lift total of any IFBB professional bodybuilder in the world. And then we also, for fun, did an event with, uh, at the Olympia called the World's Strongest Pro Bodybuilder. And, uh, we competed in the deadlift and the bench press and I won that competition. And so that was, uh, that was awarded to me as the only actual world's strongest pro bodybuilder competition that was held, uh, that, that I won actually the previous year, Johnny Jackson competed against, uh, uh, against, uh, Oh my God, Ben, Ben white. Okay. And so there was only two ever held. I always thought it would be interesting to keep it going and maybe it'll be, it'll be brought back. We'll see. Yeah, who was that bodybuilder that turned into a world's strongest man? Like Pujanowski, was that the guy? Uh, yeah, he world's strongest man. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, I don't know. He was a former bodybuilder and then went to world's strongest man, I think, or was it the other way around? He was world's strongest man. I think at least 
I want to say four times. <laughs> yeah, he was, yeah, he was pretty phenomenal. I had, a, yeah. had a great physique. Yeah, and which is enormous. When you see like the, the strongman competitions, uh, and last year I was at IMG Academy uh, at the same time where they were holding the strongman qualifier, and and Half Thor Bjornsson walked by me, and that man, so the mountain from you know the Game of Thrones, but he walked by me, and it, he's a gigantic man, but he's he doesn't have like striations and everything coming through him. So when you look at a bodybuilder, you're you're looking at your typical like almost superhero muscle and fitness type uh, physique. So it was really interesting to see uh, the difference in body types for like a strongest man versus uh, you know IFBB pro. Yeah, I mean, world's strongest men are, have just gotten so big and freakish now. And the loads that they have to, to lift, you really don't want to be lean. That's when injuries start to occur. When you get too lean under those kind of loads, you start uh, tearing muscles and tendons. And uh, I think that, that those physiques are, are built for exactly what they're doing. I mean, you're talking about 1,300-pound yokes, 1,000-pound deadlifts. It's pretty phenomenal what they put themselves through. <laughs> yeah uh i think i might have a hernia trying to do that all right so let's talk about you and how did you get your start um in bodybuilding did you come from powerlifting or was it kind of the other way around you just started you know working out as a kid where did you really kind of get your feet wet it was just the opposite i was a 140 pound uh kid in college at 18 years old i was scrawny i was a soccer player I had wrestled 98 pounds in high school in 106. So I was a really skinny kid and I just started lifting weights because I didn't want to be skinny anymore. And it actually took me 10 years before I competed in a powerlifting meet. It took me that long to get big enough and strong enough to where I felt like I could be competitive. Wow. Yeah. I mean, most soccer players, that is not a route that you're taking to <laughs> go a professional bodybuilder. <laughs> I mean, I can see no, like I got a ball wrestler. That would make sense. But soccer player. Yeah. No. And I got an award in high school for the chicken legs award. My knees were bigger than my quads. So it was a long uh, road for me. My first bodybuilding show after two years of lifting, I weighed 158 on stage. I was quite thin. <laughs> so you were the, you were the original physique competitor. Indeed. Yeah, I, I did uh, a, a few physique shows and I'm 6'3", so I'm, I'm a pretty big dude. I did a few physique shows. It was like, uh, I can't remember. There was one in Vegas and it was supposed to be um, one in Vegas and then it was like uh, WBFF, which are kind of interesting. But yeah, that, that, that backstage and people all kind of tanned up and popping marshmallows or Skittles and doing push-ups and not wearing deodorant because the, the tanner is going <laughs> to sweat off. It's, it's pretty fun to kind of see that. It's an interesting field. It's, it's much the same today. The worst part is with the diets they eat, the egg whites and broccoli and protein powders, that the, the stench back there is horrendous. That's where you need a COVID mask is in the back room of the pump-up room at a bodybuilding show. <laughs> That's what the original N95 mask was for. It was for bodybuilding backstage, I think. I think so. All right, so let's let's get into let's get into the vertical diet. So I I did this for five weeks, and I'll, I'm gonna tell people uh, about my results here, and, and then I then I want to get your thought process and kind of how you, how you developed it. So I mean, as you talked about, you know, uh, pumping a bunch of broccoli and protein powder and all sorts of things that can cause some digestional digestional issues. I was on this for five full weeks. I started at almost 209 pounds. I went up to 4,000 calories after, I think a couple of weeks, I, I sent you a note and I was at like 3,500 and I went up to 4,000 calories. I lost 
four and a half pounds, I got leaner and I got stronger and my blood pressure was completely fine from probably having five or 6,000 milligrams of sodium a day where I was going from the like, okay, and I, I was a model for a while. So I was going like 1,500, maybe, maybe 2,000 milligrams of sodium a day because I didn't want to get bloated. And I really wasn't worried about blood pressure issues. It was really interesting to see what happened to me about adding these things in there. And I was having literally a couple pounds of rice a day, right rice. I mean, I was just sucking that stuff down about 200-ish grams of protein a day. And these had 0.3 to 0.4 grams of fat uh, per pound. Yeah, and I got leaner. And even my, we're crashing with my in-laws. So we sold our place in downtown Chicago. And my father-in-law, I walked down the steps one day and he's like, I better not make you mad because you look like you're, <laughs> you're just getting stronger and bigger. It's like, what, what in the hell are you doing? I'm like, it's just this, this diet that I'm on. Like, I, I felt really strong. And it was really interesting to see what happened. I kind of did a poll from everybody you know, on my Instagram. Uh, and a lot of people thought I'd get a lot bigger. Some people thought I'd put on some fat. But I didn't think even from my whole background in you know, fitness and nutrition, it was really interesting to see when I had 4,000 calories, about 600 grams of carbohydrates a day, predominantly from white rice, some potatoes, maybe I had some blueberries, but that was pretty much the carbs and like if you're including carrots, right? Uh, and some cranberry and maybe a little orange juice. But a lot of those things that I mentioned, your average fitness or nutrition professional once said, don't drink juice, the white rice, you're not having that, right? You're stripping out the fiber and you have the insulin response. Wait a minute, you're taking 500 to 1,000 milligrams of sodium pre and post workout. There's a lot of things in this diet that your average dietitian or fitness expert wouldn't recommend. So if you want to you touch on that, I know I asked you a lot of stuff there, but it's really interesting to see what happened to my body. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. I will say that uh, I learned a lot from personal experience, trial and error, over 30 years of competing, both in powerlifting and bodybuilding. I've bulked up to over 300 pounds uh, to power lift, and I've dieted down certainly many, many times uh, to probably less than 5% body fat to compete as an IFBB pro bodybuilder. And I've done it many, many ways over the years, dirty bulks to over-restrictive dieting, uh, which is both still the most common method used on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And uh, I weighed not just weight loss and weight gain, uh, I weighed that against the quality of my physique and the performance, because obviously as a power lifter, you have to perform. Yeah. Uh, and how much lean body mass I gained or lost and how much fat I gained or lost and how I felt and how it affected my strength and performance uh, throughout each of those diets. Many, many times I tried a low carb keto, less than 50 grams of carbs to get ready for a bodybuilding show. And many, many times I tried the pizza, pasta, pancakes, uh, seafood diet, a uh, gallon of milk a day uh -huh. to bulk. And uh, throughout my career, I've had over 150 blood tests. So not only was I able to make some observations about you know the way I looked and the way I felt, but I was able to see uh, what the blood work, how that changed depending on what type of diet I was on. So uh, I learned a lot. We didn't have the internet back then. Uh, there's a lot of things that have, have happened in research over the last five to 10 years that have uh, confirmed a lot of what I think bodybuilders already discovered 
and most of the professionals were quick to say that the bros were right. Uh, the guys that were training back in the early 90s, uh, some of the most successful ones, uh, were doing a lot of the right things. Yeah. Uh, I will say that I didn't invent everything in this diet. Uh, you know, Vince Garanda was talking about much of the foundation of this diet back in the 60s when he was working with a lot of the best bodybuilders in the world, uh, including Arnold Schwarzenegger. So you're right. Gurus now will typically say avoid red meat, avoid dairy, avoid fruit, and avoid salt. Very common. And then they'll have you walk out of their uh, office or their nutritionist will assign you this diet that is composed of egg whites, uh, tilapia, uh, tons of cruciferous vegetables. Uh, and that's generally about it, along with an enormous amount of cardio daily. Uh -huh. and restricted, of course, as we mentioned, from sodium. So uh, what I discovered is that when I was dieting on those restrictive diets, and I've done boneless, skinless chicken breast and egg whites and broccoli many times, uh, I was very hungry. I lost a lot of energy and strength. And uh, you know, just because I was eating a lot of calories, I didn't experience what women experience with those restrictive diets, but I trained women as far back as the, as the late 80s, uh, and more recently up to including uh, third place Miss Olympia, Nadia Wyatt, hmm. uh, along with a lot of other competitive women uh, in the fitness figure bikini industry and, and just in the general health environment, what they experience on the restrictive diets, egg whites, white fish, and broccoli, yeah. are a host of problems. The, the biggest one is the female triad, uh, anemia, low iron, amenorrhea, cessation of the menstrual period, osteoporosis, uh, which we actually saw in the runners I used to train back at the University of Oregon uh, in the early 90s would manifest itself in um, uh, shin splints were quite common in women who would over-restrict their diets and end up with some degree of osteoporosis. And there was a huge news article recently about an Oregon coach who was training for Nike uh, and their distance runners having a host of those kinds of problems. So it, it's, it's not like it was, it's something that used to happen. It's still very common. It's even more common now that the industry has exploded over the last five to seven years. There's so many more people competing in bodybuilding figure physique and bikini. Yeah. Uh, and so we see a lot more of these problems. Uh, we see, uh, you know, to the exclusion of egg yolks and biotin for skin, hair, and nails, women suffer from dry skin and dry hair. And in the absence of adequate iodine, which is often the uptake is blocked by those cruciferous vegetables, these women suffer from hypothyroidism. And then that dry skin, uh, that dry hair starts falling out. These are common, common problems in the uh, bikini fitness figure industry that uh, I see, you know, every day because I'm in this industry. And so that's the shortcoming of the over-restriction on one end. You're tired, you're hungry, you manif it manifests in micronutrient deficiencies and health problems, as I just detailed. Yeah. On the flip side, my big athletes, the bodybuilders and powerlifters in the offseason, uh, the strongmen, uh, even the offensive linemen in football. I've been training linemen in football since the mid-90s when I was working with the uh, Rose Bowl uh, uh, winning University of Oregon football team in 1995. Nice. Um, these guys tend to just 
go carte blanche on the seafood diet I eat every time I see food. <laughs> and they end up with some degree of fatty liver disease and metabolic syndrome. This was what happened when Hofthor contacted me four years ago for help. He said he was getting fatter, he wasn't getting stronger. Well, I lived that, having bulked up to over 300 pounds many times uh, back as early as I think 1995 was the first time I got over 300 pounds. And then periodically, throughout my powerlifting career, I would go back and forth from powerlifting to bodybuilding. So I would bulk up, diet down, bulk up, diet down. And so, and I did it many, many ways, as mentioned, and learned what was the right and wrong ways to do it based mm -hmm. on how the results that I achieved. And so I immediately knew when Hofthor came to me what the problem was, and I'd seen it with Mark Bell, and I'd seen it with many other athletes over the years. Uh, he had metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, uh, fatty liver disease, um, high cholesterol, obviously. And he was partitioning nutrients primarily towards fat at that point. And his, uh, he wasn't insulin sensitive, and uh, so he was having a difficult time you know, with water retention, gas and bloating, digestive issues, uh, which I've experienced throughout my career. Yeah. And so it was a pretty easy fix for me. It was kind of... Uh, uh, why I designed the vertical diet some 10 years ago with the information that I had learned throughout my career and the coaches I had worked with. Uh, and so I sent that information to Hofthor and almost immediately, uh, we, at least initially, we started with a little bit of weight loss to try and get that fatty liver resolved. Mm -hmm. uh, brought his blood pressure down, improved his blood sugars, got him a CPAP for sleep, got him vitamin D3, uh, insulin sensitivity and um, all of that. And then we changed the compositions of the foods that he ate and we implemented those 10 minute walks after each meal and he was able to regain the weight without gaining as much fat. He became much more muscular and stronger as a result of being able to partition those nutrients um, you know, into the muscle instead of into fat storage. So that kind of, in, in a long-winded sense, is, is the history uh, and where we are currently with the diet. The biggest piece now has been transitioning from athletics into mainstream into the dad bods and soccer moms mm -hmm. who unfortunately um, see these women on the bikini stage in the best shape of their life and start trying to follow their diets right. and so now we're seeing all of these problems in the general public these women end up at the doctor's office getting shots for iron and b12 and d3 and glutathione and um, all of those things and thyroid medication because they're uh, depressed and, and tired and their hair is falling out and they lost a ton of muscle trying to follow these guru diets. And so uh, I'm proposing there's a better way uh, that is healthier, is better for uh, satiation, for uh, mitigating you know, the loss of energy to maintaining strength and uh, retaining more lean body mass. And that's what the fundamentals are of the vertical diet. Yeah, and, and yeah, if people, they, they see these competitors on stage and they look their best aesthetically, but often they feel like shit. I, I mean, I just, I just know that when I was competing, I was down to like 3% body fat. And like, that was, the, that was the cover of my book. And people were like, well, how do you like, I don't walk around looking like that. Um, I was getting some nosebleeds. My, my nose was really dry. I mean, some women stopped menstruating. There's all sorts of different things, but like, you often just feel completely drained because either you do some sort of long, you know, 
water cut for two weeks beforehand and maybe you're trying to choke down a pizza the night before and and like in some sort of sodium bicarbonate bath and like you just you just feel like shit and you think like living on asparagus and tilapia and sweet potatoes for the last several days or whatever the diet is often that they recommend and then having the pizza is gonna make you feel good but when you can't actually produce saliva because you're so dehydrated and you're trying to take that down I've never felt so bad in my life. And like my wife went with me to my first competition and she's like, you need some carbs because you are just you're really angry. Uh, yeah. So a lot of people see that. And it's, it's really interesting uh, to see because you know, a lot of the staples of your, uh, your diet are just, you know, as I mentioned, I want you to touch on this about the things that people generally are supposed to stay away from, right? We're supposed to stay away from white rice for the most part and you know have the brown rice or the quinoa or whatever and you're supposed to stay away from you know orange juice or cranberry juice right can you, can you touch on on those like generalistic myths right now as far as what why you designed the vertical diet why you incorporated those yeah let me let me just uh, regarding that your competitive experience and all those uh -huh. problems that, that you uh experienced I did a video called, if you want to be healthy, don't compete. <laughs> and I talk about the difference between health and fitness, and they're not the same thing. Uh -huh. Fitness is the ability to perform a particular duty or task. The fitness level required to be a world's strongest man is not healthy. Mm -hmm. The same would be true of a UFC fighter or a bodybuilding competitor at the Olympia, or even a 14-year-old girl competing in the Olympics and gymnastics. Those are not healthy. Uh, the best that we can do is mitigate damage along the way because we're taking our body to such an extreme level. I propose that you should minimize the severity and duration of those, uh, of the impact of what it is you're trying to accomplish uh, to your health. And so, yes, the last 30 days before competition, you're gonna feel pretty shitty, but it shouldn't be 90 days and it shouldn't uh, endure post-competition for any extended period of time. Right. You shouldn't have caused problems that, that require months to recover from. You, know, you should be able to, to quickly get back into a normal caloric intake and, uh, and, and live a normal life. So, and, and even with my big athletes, you know, I'll diet them down after a big show it's obviously you know when Hofthor is 455 pounds that's not healthy but it is the fitness level required to win the world's strongest man uh, to, to endure those kinds of loads and, and to win that competition so I diet my big athletes down I periodize their weight I bring them down about 10 percent and Hofthor will lose 40 plus pounds after uh, his competitive season and uh, we've seen that him do that at least four times over the last four years. Wow. Drop down into the 380 pound range, uh, 390, and then bulk back up to 450. And then my women who compete, you know, Nadia Wyatt in the Olympia, uh, she'll obviously put weight back on after the show. But the goal is not to get her to rebound to such an extreme that she adds an extraordinary amount of, of fat uh, and has an extended period at which she's got amenorrhea or, uh, you know, any other. Uh, deficiencies that might cause her health problems. So that gets us back into your question about kind of how did, how did I come about designing the components of the vertical diet? First and foremost, the foundation is about health. The foods that I recommend first are about getting adequate micronutrient density uh, using highly bioavailable foods that are easy to digest. So when you um, 
I shut, I shut the feed down. We, we had it there. It's like, it's good. So our experiment of the live worked out well for half an hour. Had almost a thousand people join in. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. All right, carry on. Yeah, our, did our live end? Yeah, I, 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 I shut it down because I could hear the, the feedback. So I want to make sure that people catch this because this is, this is the most important part of your diet. So they're going to have okay, to tune great. in to the podcast. Great. I'll stay focused here on you. Um, and so I build the foundation first. You mentioned you were consuming a lot of sodium. Uh, and that's great for performance, for uh, stamina, for recovery, for endurance. Yeah. Uh, it's great when combined with carbohydrates and water for filling up the, uh, the muscle cell, the glycogen, and then the three parts of water that the glycogen holds into the muscle cell and the 70% sodium that that water is. Um, giving that muscle full effect, which uh, actually has a hypertrophy benefit um, uh, completely uh, independent of mechanical tension. Um, veering off here, but the point yeah. is, is that in order for you to consume that much sodium, you had to consume adequate potassium. That's part of the foundation of my diet. That's why there's a potato in there. That's why there's fruit in there. That's why I throw some spinach for those people who can tolerate it. Uh, so the foundation does include those micronutrients that are very important. I mentioned the whole egg instead of the egg white because of yeah. the biotin, which is important for skin, hair, and nails, but it's also important for liver function, for preventing or reversing fatty liver disease for big athletes that, uh, that utilize that. The dairy for calcium. Uh, and again, now we have to say, you know, to what level can you tolerate it? If you can't handle milk due to the lactose, um, the vast majority of people can handle smaller portions of a quality Greek yogurt that's low mm -hmm. sugar, high protein. Uh, it's much more easier to consume. Yeah, that's because what I was having. I was having like a maybe a cup of Greek yogurt a day with some white rice. And if I was in a bind, maybe I'd do some protein powder and just kind of make a little mousse. Um, and then maybe I would do like a hard cheese in the monster mash type thing. Because my wife was looking at me and I wasn't doing dairy before that, she's doing dairy. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing dairy. You know, because I wasn't like doing the milk and the things like that. And I, I grew up in Wisconsin, so I'm a cheese head. Uh, so like when I was having this dairy and she's like, I'm not used to having to order groceries that include dairy in it because you're eating so much. I'm like it's delicious, but my body handled it better. So it was really interesting seeing that, uh, carry on. Yes. And, and the yogurt, uh, is a good one. And then, like you said, the hard cheese, the cheddar is almost lactose free. Mm -hmm. I'm just chasing calcium. Although whey is a fantastic protein source. A lot of people can get that from, uh, whey isolate protein powders, but they're not as micronutrient dense. And sometimes people have a, um, a casein allergy that makes it hard to digest those, those powders. So uh, the calcium is hugely important. I mentioned osteoporosis, but it's also important for nerve signaling and muscle contraction. And those people who study uh, exercise physiology know that calcium is part of the excitation relaxation cycle of muscle contraction. It's hugely important to have adequate calcium to be able to perform in the gym. Uh, so I create that foundation of those foods that I mentioned. Obviously, red meat is, is in terms of a good, better, best scenario. I prefer that over chicken or turkey uh, or even pork uh, for a number of reasons. It's three times higher in iron, six times higher in B12, nine times higher in zinc. Um, it's got creatine, obviously, and carnitine and um, selenium. It has such a whole host of great uh, micronutrients, plus <laughs> red meat uh, Ruminant animals in general, you know, beef, um, bison, deer, lamb, they all have a four-chambered stomach so they can ferment the cellulose fiber that they consume and convert it, uh, convert the uh, 
the saturated fats into polyunsaturated, or the polyunsaturated fats into saturated and monounsaturated, including conjugated linoleic acid, uh, a healthier fatty acid profile. Uh, whereas chickens, the monogastric animals like chickens and turkeys, they usually have about a 17 or 25 to one omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, hmm. uh, where ruminant animals will have about a three to one omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Having said that, you don't get uh, EPA and DHA from cows. You get it from salmon because it has 200 times the amount of EPA and DHA as you can get from any other meat source, chicken, yeah. cows, you name it. Uh, and so twice a week, I do put in salmon uh, as uh, for EPA and DHA for your omega-3s uh, in particular. So I've created this foundation. It's well-rounded. It's a whole foods. It's a, a variety. It's a good broad spectrum of foods, the vegetables that I choose. Um, and the, the foods that I choose are also intended to be easy to digest. Yeah. And so I kind of pour all the foods through this filter, and the filter is the low FODMAP menu. If you've ever been to a nutritionist with digestive disorder, uh, the first thing they're going to do is initiate an elimination diet. Very common. Uh, and the most well-studied elimination diet, that uh, the research suggests that up to 60 to 80% of the people uh, who utilize the, the FODMAP diet experience some relief in their symptoms, gas and bloating, IBS, uh, Crohn's, you know, all of those types of autoimmune disorders that are presumed to be from uh, digestive distress, your inability to break down whatever um, you know, fermentable oligodye, monosaccharides, and polyols that are in the FODMAPs. And so uh, I, I lead with that. I start with that. Uh, admittedly and knowingly that not everybody suffers from digestive distress. It's individualistic. It's dose dependent. Uh, how the foods are prepared matters, and it can be cumulative in terms of whether or not you're eating uh, a certain food uh, throughout the day or over a series of days that you eventually can't tolerate as well. And so uh, certainly we'd reintroduce foods that people didn't have a problem with, but I, I start with the low FODMAP menu. And that's why the white rice, that's why a decent amount of fruit is well tolerated. Um, red meats, very well tolerated. That's part of your low residue diet that even your, uh, your doctor would prescribe if you were gonna go in and, and uh, get roto-rooted for your, uh, you know, to get tested for a colonoscopy or something. <laughs> yeah. It's how you eat a low residue diet because the vast majority of that is digested in the, uh, in the small intestine and doesn't uh, make it into the large intestine. Uh, having said that, I still have, you know, obviously plenty of vegetables in there, mm -hmm. uh, carrots, uh, um, uh, spinach, squash, uh, cucumber, uh, a lot of things that are on the low FODMAP diet that are easier to digest. And uh, The potato I like for the potassium, but also because it's, uh, it's got that prebiotic, which can kind of help uh, with your, your gut biome. Yeah. Uh, also, they're high satiety. So if if I've got somebody on a calorie-restricted diet, one of the first and foremost, the, the two biggest things I need to do is make sure they're not too hungry and they're not tired right. because they'll, they'll go off the diet. And there's a satiety index or satiety index, however you choose to pronounce it, and they measure the, the, how long people stay full uh, based on certain foods that they eat. Obviously, high proteins uh, does a great job for satiety. But a potato and an orange are at the very high end of this index for satiety. They keep you full longer. And so 
uh, I implement those in the diet and they have the added benefit of being high in potassium. So yes, I do pick specific foods. I'm not zealous about it, but there's a purpose for it. I think I'm selective, not restrictive. There's over a hundred choices on the vertical uh, or on the uh, FODMAP menu yeah. that people can use as substitutions. But I select those that I think will, will give you uh, the most micronutrients that are easiest to digest, to give you the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, and then from there, you know, we make adjustments based on an individual's uh, ability to comply with the diet. As I've often said, compliance is the science. And, right, right. Uh, and what about, um, and I know a lot of people worry about, uh, you, you know, having like, you know, the orange juice and the cranberry juice and, and things like that, which you're often, you said the cranberry helps with the thyroid. Um, and can you speak to why you added that in there and why you, why you feel like that's beneficial for individuals? Or th is this just for a certain type of individual who happens to be high-performing athlete or a bodybuilder that makes the most sense for? Well, iodine is for everybody, uh, particularly dieters. It wouldn't even be for athletes, although athletes do sweat out iodine at a much greater rate than the general population, so they have a higher demand for it. Uh, but the CDC put uh, iodine into salt in the 1920s because we had uh, goiter. It was a, a, a big problem, particularly up in the goiter belt, the north, northern section of the United States where there wasn't a lot of iodine in the soils. Uh, and we saw that... Uh, uh, that had a huge effect on reducing uh, the problems with hypothyroidism. So yeah, iodine is important in the diet. And if you want to use iodized salt, I think that that's a, a good recommendation. Uh, foods that are that have a decent amount of iodine in them, although it's kind of hard to get enough, so a Greek yogurt, mm -hmm. um, some egg yolks. Uh, but if you need additional iodine, uh, because uh, you, maybe you're an athlete that sweats it out a lot, or you just have a higher demand, then you can use, uh, you know, I, I recommended the cranberry juice. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that um, I think that uh, another option would be to use like a sea kelp, but I just didn't know that people would enjoy that. I I, I, I try <laughs> and design it right. I try to design the diet so that it would it would be a lifestyle of things that people would commonly enjoy eating. And sea kelp's probably not on that list. So yeah. I'd way down on my list, right? Just three ounces of cranberry juice is 300% of the daily RDA for iodine, which is about 125 micrograms. And that's for obviously for a sedentary middle-aged, uh, 140 or 150 pound person. So yeah. uh, the demands are higher as you get bigger. So that's the purpose of the cranberry juice is for iodine specifically. Uh, I, I don't know that I don't think the research suggests it, it, it cures any um, uh, any urinary tract infections, but certain portions of the population can help reduce the incidence as a preventative measure. Um, and then the orange juice is really is is uh, you know first of all uh, if you're dieting I use oranges. Mm -hmm. I like to put fruit in the diet. I mentioned it's high satiety. It's uh, uh, it does stimulate increased body temperature. It does stimulate the liver, which is where 80% of thyroid is converted from T4, the inactive form, to T3. Uh, so I, I do think there is a stimulatory effect there for metabolism in small doses. And my recommendation is just a few ounces, even for weight gainers. For weight losers, I use the orange. I use fruit. And then any juicy fruit, oranges, berries, like you mentioned, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries, melons, 
for my weight gainers, I put, I let them have the orange juice because it stimulates appetite and they need to eat uh, a lot of food pretty often. And that's one of the biggest hurdles. You know, obviously you got to be in a calorie deficit to lose weight and you have to be in a calorie surplus to gain weight. And one of the most challenging things for people that are trying to gain weight, and I'm talking about professional linemen in football too. I work with Lane Johnson of the Philadelphia Eagles. And when I started working with him, he was 312 pounds. He struggled to stay in the 320s where he needed to be to perform optimally. Yeah. And so the, the purpose of, of some of the things in the diet uh, are designed for weight gain. The orange juice is huge for helping with appetite. And then you mentioned the white rice, really easy to digest. Once you've built your foundation of, of potato and orange and, um, you know, and carrots and spinach and all that stuff, and you've got your micronutrients, now you want to drive calories. And I found that eating a whole lot of pizza, pasta, pancakes, or grains, or even oatmeal, in uh, even um, spaghetti, you know, in large quantities, they just bloat you and it becomes yeah. really hard to digest and then to eat your next meal. So I use white rice to drive calories for uh, high workloads like two-a-day CrossFitters or, mm -hmm. or football players, uh, people who burn a ton of calories or have a lot of mass to support and need yeah. a lot of calories just to maintain their body weight. Yeah, I mean, I was having, this morning I had a pound of cooked white rice, which is several cups if you're measuring, I'm, I'm measuring everything on this food scale. And I normally, if I'm eating, I'm waiting two hours to work out, but I wanted to get the workout in before I, I got on this podcast with you. So I, I ate, had the white rice and had some protein powder and some blueberries. Uh, and a half an hour later, I was working out and I didn't feel as bloated or weighed down as I normally would have. Now it was a more of an upper body heavy day because I'm kind of still on that two day, one day off, three day split, but I felt much better. Now leg day may have needed a little more time to digest, but I did feel pretty good where normally most people are, are having something like that. If they have a quinoa or brown rice or something else, like a high fat meal. Yeah. I think that they might feel like they're going to hurl uh, if they haven't had it that close to working out. Yeah. And that's consistent with the recommendation from the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition. They recommend getting a uh, a good bolus of carbohydrates in the meal prior to training and the, the, the time frame between that meal and your training, of course, depends on your individual ability to, to be comfortably digested uh, and the intensity of the work, like you said, the difference between upper body and leg day. Right. But the biggest driver of performance uh, pre-workout is not the sugar that you take in. Your, your glycogen stores will be adequate from a meal that you take in two or three hours prior to training. Uh, you don't need to, to down a whole ton of sugar before training. And to be honest, the science doesn't suggest it improves performance. The ISSNs looked at this extensively along with the NSCA. Uh, the salt does make a big difference. And they do recommend, and they have a protocol, uh, the ISSN recommends the 500 milligrams of sodium about 20 to 30 minutes before an exercise bout or a game or something like that or practice. And that's about a quarter teaspoon of salt. It's not a lot. Uh, I don't like the taste of the salt, so I use the salt tablets. I, I get sodium chloride. Yeah, those uh, the thermo tabs. I got those. Uh, and I'll, I'll touch on for everybody all, all the kind of supplement recommendations that Stan talks about. Yeah, the thermo tabs, I popped, there's like 180 milligrams per tablet or something. So I, yeah. I, would, I would pop two of those 20 or 30 minutes before. And my, my strength, I mean, went up tremendously. I remember when I first messaged you, I just moved here. I hadn't had a ton of weights because I, I stopped training downtown. 
So I didn't have access to a gym and for obvious 2020 reasons. So I ordered a bunch of weights and stuff. And I just told my wife a couple weeks ago, I'm like, I, I need to order more weights because I literally got stronger in that few weeks. And I, one of the constants, and I've done all sorts of diets, but one, one of the only thing that I could pinpoint that was different was having that sodium beforehand. And I just felt better. I felt more dense and my pump, which makes a ton of sense, got much more pronounced from taking that pre and post and actually during, I have a, a drink that I have that, a little sodium in it too. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it was a big difference. And your stamina and your endurance, you get yeah. 30, 40 minutes into a workout and you're not hitting the wall. You're still looking around for more shit to do. <laughs> yeah. You just feel better. Yeah. So that's huge. Um, and so that, and then if you're going to, if it's, if it's the kind of training, maybe you're a soccer player or something or a football player, and it's going to be a two hour workout or something or a game, the ISSN recommends that you can take 500 milligrams of sodium, 90 minutes out, 500 milligrams, 60 minutes out, 500 milligrams, 30 minutes out. You don't want to take too much in a single bolus because mm -hmm. you might miss your workout. You'll be on the toilet with diarrhea. <laughs> Uh, it's not a more is better scenario. Yeah. And so you got to see how your body responds because it will suck water into your stomach and expel uh, the sodium. It, it'll be quite alarmed by that, that giant amount. Um, so get used to it. Start, you know, 500 milligrams is well tolerated. I gave uh, Camille LeBlanc a thousand milligrams uh, to CrossFit uh, uh, at the Reebok games before and after some of the bigger, the longer events, maybe not the short events, along with the Monster Mash, which was easy to consume, you know, the, the ground beef and the white rice and a little bit of bone broth is really easy to, to eat. And like you said, you, you can digest it well and it yeah. nicely. She gained a pound of body weight over the five days of competing, you know, three <laughs> competitions a day, I think it was, which was new because she had always lost four or five pounds over yeah. the course of the, the competition, as most people would. And so maintaining body weight and hydration, you know, a lot of football teams will weigh you before and after practice and then get you to rehydrate uh, to, to get that weight back. And that's always smart. So we try and prevent a lot of that going in and throughout so that you lose less weight uh, and perform better. We also find that like with Lane, Lane went from 312 pounds to 333 pounds and his systolic blood pressure went down from the mid 150s down into the low 120s. Um, and part of that was the CPAP, which dramatically changes your blood pressure and, and your salty sweat rate. Uh, part of that was, um, uh, was getting adequate potassium and vitamin D3, uh, but also um, just him using sodium for training he was sweating out less uh he had a, he was a high salty sweater it was mm. as tested with a patch from uh, the heat institute dr sander Godick's group they they see how much you sweat out and your blood pressure and your level of conditioning can determine how much salt you sweat out and how dehydrated you get during training so it's important to to equip yourself yeah because you know i that's the thing uh you get all these standard recommendations to stay away from red meat and too much salt especially for you know high blood pressure and you know even the dash diet dietary approaches to stop hypertension and they're they're really saying to stay away from that but a lot of research now isn't pointing to it's actually the sodium but you know the type of food that you're having or the combination of the, the carbohydrates with it too so i i measured my blood pressure I was 120 over, it was like 75 or something. And I measured it five weeks in and it was pretty much exactly the same. 
And as I said earlier in the podcast, I was tripling my sodium levels. So it's quite interesting to see the change. And for me, not the change because all my markers and everything were incredibly like on point. Yeah, people do get concerned about the health impact of sodium. The largest study on salt uh, and its effect on blood pressure and health was the PURE study. Uh, it was run, uh, one of the, the, uh, the people running the study was Dr. Salem Youssef. He's a cardiologist out of Canada. He's head of the World Heart Federation. They studied over 120,000 people in 22 countries. They did urinary excretion uh, analysis, so it was a lot more accurate than just those um, you know, epidemiology studies with frequency questionnaires. Uh, what they discovered is there was a pretty healthy range of sodium uh, between about three and six grams a day. Uh, that's sodium. Remember, sodium chloride uh, is salt, and uh, only about 40% of salt is sodium. So if I say three to six grams a day, maybe five grams of sodium would be 12 grams of salt, if you wanted to, to measure that, just so we distinguish the difference between the two. And uh, what they found was between three and six grams a day, they had the lowest incidence of cardiovascular disease. Below three grams a day, they had a, uh, a really significant spike in all-cause mortality. And so there is, uh, there is an instance at where, which too little sodium can cause health problems. Now, there are hypertensive people, salt-sensitive individuals who have uh, maybe genetic predisposition for high blood pressure. When you got over six and certainly over seven grams a day, that portion of the population, small percentage, maybe 10, 12% of the population who's hypertensive and salt sensitive had an increase in all-cause mortality. It was not as dramatic as that below three grams. They had a much uh, more significant increase in all-cause mortality when they over-restricted than when they over-consumed. Interesting. And when you introduced adequate potassium into the hypertensives who consumed over seven grams of sodium a day, the increase flattened out, not entirely flat, but it dramatically decreased. So what you find is that a potassium deficiency is a lot uh, better indicator, a lot uh, bigger problem to solve than the sodium intake itself. The normotensive individuals, the 90% of the population who consumed over seven grams of sodium a day did not show uh, a significant increase in all-cause mortality. So most people can tolerate significantly more than what uh, the AHA recommendations are. I will say with respect to the DASH diet studies, a couple of things. One, they were done on only hypertensives. It was only a 30-day study, and they didn't have a control group. Uh, well, let's say this. They introduced a significant increase in fruits and vegetables, which provided them greater potassium. And they didn't have a control group where they introduced the fruits and vegetables but didn't reduce the sodium. And so the DASH group did have a decrease in blood pressure, but it wasn't necessarily because of the reduction in sodium. It was, it was more likely because of the introduction of more potassium from fruits and vegetables. Huh. And so that's just something to consider. Look, if you're obese and hypertensive, and inactive, and you're eating a can of Pringles a day, do not add salt to your diet. Bad idea, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? But if you're an active individual, uh, sweating, you know, training at the gym, uh, you, and, and generally speaking, those of us who are uh, 
active and healthy are not eating fast food and we're not eating a lot of packaged food. So we're probably on the lower end of consumers when it comes to sodium. And, yeah. you know, and we believe all of the, the hype and the myths that we have to restrict sodium. So yep. when you add it back in, you're probably only getting five or six grams a day, which is well within the range uh, for healthy individuals. And then if you're a, a, a salty sweater like Lane Johnson is, uh, you might need more. And so you have to base it on your size, your workload, the temperature, the humidity, uh, all of that has a as an effect. So uh, introduce it and see how you feel. You said yeah. you felt fantastic. I experienced the same thing. And beyond that, my immune system dramatically improved. I, I, I haven't had a cold to speak of in almost five years. Really? Yeah. I mean, dude, I, f- I feel great. And, you know, often on the podcast, I try to stay neutral. But, you know, when I do something this long, you know, I, I try to say how I exactly feel. I feel great. I was sleeping well. I mean, I have a two and a half year old kid. So I chase around that crazy little shit. So that I'm going to sleep fine anyways. Uh, right. But I did, I did sleep well. I didn't find myself waking up uh, in the middle of the night as often, just kind of restless. I did kind of taper my water down a little bit because I was waking up to, to pee the first couple of weeks. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I felt great. My workouts felt great. And then well, I do want to touch on something that you recommend in the diet, which I feel this is the easiest thing people can do you know, whether you're on the vertical diet or any other diet is at least three 10 minute walks a day after working out. I mean, if you take anything from this, I mean, yes, I'm talking to a a IFBB legend here, but we don't need to lift heavy weights and all sorts of shit. He recommends just walking three times a day for 10 minutes. If you don't have three times a day, you don't have 30 minutes in your day. I guarantee you're scrolling on Instagram or whatever. Hopefully you're checking out Stan or myself, Joey Thermofit for a shameless plug there. But why three, why three walks 10 minutes a day? Oh, don't get me started. But uh, uh, I tell you, about 12 years ago when I was training with Mark Bell, we would do our heavy leg days on Sunday, our 800-pound-plus squats. And I would lay around a lot. I would sleep. I would nap. I would sit. And my delayed onset muscle soreness would last for three or four or sometimes five days. Wow. And I was like, this isn't working. I, I felt like I wasn't recovering from my workouts. I was eating a ton of food. I was you know, really heavy, 285, 290. And so I came across something at the time, and I, I can't pinpoint where, but it was just talking about active recovery. So I got a, a recumbent bike, and I was staying in a hotel room near the gym in Sacramento, training with Mark every day. And I put the recumbent bike in my hotel room. And that evening, Sunday evening after leg day, I rode the bike. I did a little hit session. I would do a 40 or 50 second spin kind of fast against modest tension. And then I would rest for 10 or 20 seconds. I would repeat that 10 times. I'd get a little pump in my legs and knees. I get a little blood flow. It felt good, but it was all you know concentric motion. It was all push, push, push. So I wasn't doing any damage. I wasn't in, in, enduring any load. Yeah. Um, and then the next day I would, I would do, I did it three times, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, three times. I was almost ready to squat again on Tuesday. And my delayed onset muscle soreness went from, you know, four days to two days or less uh, immediately. And that was kind of a, the, you know, kind of a light bulb that went off. That was the moment. And then now I recommend the 10 minute walk for many, many reasons. Obviously it improves uh, circulation and helps you recover uh, better from training and improves blood sugar. 
uh, insulin sensitivity, it's actually twice as effective as metformin for reducing blood sugars. Hmm. The number one prescribed diabetes medication in the world, uh, taking a 10-minute walk after meals will reduce the spike and the duration of glucose and therefore insulin right behind it, what they call the area under the curve, uh, to a greater degree than, than medication, than metformin. And so it's great for blood sugar control. Uh, it's great for digestion. It increases uh, uh, enzymatic action and muscular contraction so that your, your food is digested, you don't feel as bloated. I say it uh, minimizes gas. Mark Bell says it releases gas. <laughs> I'm a gas reducer myself. Yeah, either way, whether that's a, a turbocharger for your walk or you know, you're not bringing it <laughs> home and you just feel better. You know? it's, it's, so, it's that nitrous oxide for your car. You just press that yeah. button and just let it go. And then you touched on something. You said, look, if you don't have 10 minutes, I'm a firm believer in compliance, as yeah. you know. I'm, that's what I preach. It's, my whole diet is founded on it. If you're not going to follow it, then there's really no sense. You know, it's just words on a paper. Yeah. Ten-minute walks are sustainable. Anybody who's ever assigned as a coach or been a client who's been assigned, uh, you know, a 40-minute treadmill session each evening, knows that it's it's not very sustainable. It's not enjoyable, and the research suggests it's not terribly effective either. Hmm. More exercise does not equal more weight loss. It's about 99% uh, caloric control. And, uh, you know, while exercise is important for health, the idea of trading calories for uh, cardio uh, is, a, is a bad idea, not very effective. So, yeah, the 10-minute walk. I mean, I put my kids' breakfast down on the table, and I go take a 10-minute walk, or I can walk them to school in the morning when they're, you know, now they're home on their computers. Yeah. Uh, it's something you can do after a meal anywhere. You go to a restaurant at night, uh, weather permitting, when you walk out the front door, you can just set your timer for five minutes and walk down the street and then turn around and walk back and get in your car. When I traveled the U.S. on my tour this summer, of course, there were certain cities. I, I didn't walk in Detroit and I didn't walk in, <laughs> in Buffalo. Uh, there, were, there were some cities I avoided to walk in, but uh, you know, weather permitting and, and safety being a concern, uh, sometimes I would walk up and down the hallways in my hotel room if the weather wasn't good. In the airports when I was traveling, if I was picking up my luggage at the, at the baggage claim, I would be walking around baggage claim. And <laughs> these are intentional. I'm, my yeah. arms are swinging and I'm, I've got a, a pretty you know, deliberate pace and yeah. uh, they're not leisure for me. I actually do use them uh, with the purpose of you're like, heart rate up. look at this big ass guy mall walking. <laughs> yes, and mall walking. I've mall walked many yep. times. I'll go to Cheesecake Factory, and and they're usually attached to a mall. And <laughs> I'll go mall walk. Uh, so I'm just saying that it's something yeah. anybody can do anywhere, sure. anytime. It's enjoyable. It's sustainable. It recharges your battery. If you're yeah. sitting in your living room after a meal and you kind of start to nod off, you know, in just three, two, one, stand up. Yep. Go take a 10 minute walk. You'll feel like a million bucks. Like, yeah. Just like the energizer. Pump. Well, I, I feel great. So, I mean, and now, uh, you know, and I'll time my meals and my carbohydrates. And sometimes if I work out and I have my meal afterwards, maybe I won't take my, my walk, but at least twice a day, you know, at least my, if I'm depending on I'm eating three or four times a day, my third and fourth meal. Now I get done eating like six o'clock. I go put my shoes on and my son in Greek goes, Baba, which is dad in Greek. Are uh, you going for a walk? And I'm like, yeah, he's like, I'll watch you at the window. So he knows I'm going for my walk. And it's like 40 degrees right now in Chicago. So I'm actually getting a little bit of that cold thermogenesis. And like, I'm just kind of 
walk, walking around and I, I down and back and I come in and I feel great. And that, that will probably be a, a staple. I'm going to try to maintain that even through the winter and I work out all the time, but I, I did feel that, that you're right, that the digestion, I feel better. I felt better. If my kid was screaming or had an argument with my wife, like in the evening I go out, I just got that 10 minutes, just even that mental reprieve besides the physical, it did feel so much better. Uh, so yeah, anyway, it's incredible. Walks. And I got to tell you in terms of, uh, uh, of the athletes, like the different types of athletes I use it with, um, Nadia Wyatt in preparing for and placing third in the Miss Olympia did nothing more than three 10 minute walks a day for cardio. We used calorie control for weight loss and obviously weightlifting for lean mass retention or gain. That was all the cardio that she did. I worked with uh, Stephanie Sanzo as a popular fitness influencer in Australia. Uh, she does, hasn't done more than three 10 minute walks in two years. <laughs> she used to be one of those that would get up at 4 a.m. and do uh -huh. 40 minutes and then do another 40 minutes in the afternoon. And, uh, she suffered from all of those issues, the IBS and the exhaustion and the hypothyroidism and, uh, you know, the fatigue and all that stuff and, and over-restricted calories. And, um, but we completely switched everything for her. I also, the big athletes, Hofthor Bjornsson. Uh, really helps with digestion and insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning, like I mentioned earlier. He's got a bicycle in his garage because in Iceland it can be prohibitive to walk sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and he, after each meal, he'll go out and he'll ride that bike. Uh, and it has a dramatic impact on people's recovery and performance, as I discussed with, with my experience uh, when I was powerlifting. So I recommend them for everybody for all reasons, including the kids. My <laughs> My six-year-old and eight-year-old are like, Dad, where are you going? And they jump on their bike and they ride along next to me while I'm taking my walk. Uh, yeah, that's, it's a, a, that's a good bonding experience. Thing. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. good. Yeah, I, I, I do try to time it sometimes and try to get my kid outside and, you know, get some uh, actual vitamin D and all the other positive benefits yeah. to the sun. But uh, I know you're a busy guest. So I got one more question for you. The vertical diet, fad or future? Well, I think the important thing to understand about the vertical diet, it's unfortunate I had to put diets in the title so people would know that it's, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. It's intended to be a foundation uh, to help you be healthy in life. I've said that you're not on the vertical diet if you're not paying attention to getting proper amount, quantity and quality of sleep. You're not on the vertical diet if you're not getting adequate exercise. The 10-minute walk is what I propose. Uh, you're not on the vertical diet if you don't do some sort of resistance training. We know how important that is, particularly for women in osteoporosis and aging and, and bone mineral density. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that the vertical diet does that aren't necessarily quote unquote diet specific. And then the foundation of the diet can be utilized with any diet. If you want to intermittent fast, you can, you still need to get adequate micronutrients and pay attention mm -hmm. to your hormones into your, uh, for your digestion. Same with, uh, if you, if you prefer keto, uh, those are strategies. I don't really look at them as diet, but I look yeah. at them as strategies to help people, uh, comply. Some folks do experience a, a better satiety response to things like, uh, keto or intermittent fasting. Uh, but even there, the foundation of the diet in terms of hydration, when you're on a keto diet and you lose your glycogen, you also lose a lot of water and that's 70% sodium. 
So you're gonna need to salt your food if you're on a keto diet or you're gonna have that keto flu and be really tired. And you're gonna blame it on the diet when it's really just a mineral deficiency. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I really think it is the future. Uh, I think that here's what's important. And we know this from studies that were done uh, by the uh, uh, weight control registry on successful dieters, over 10,000 dieters lost over 60 pounds and kept it off for more than five years. What's consistent about these people? First and foremost, 98% of them went on a diet. Any diet, a plan is better than no plan. And so uh, my recommendation is, is that, that you get a plan, you go on a diet, pick one, you know, maybe switch from one to the other. But uh, I like to to select one that has the most opportunity for long-term compliance that's consistent with your lifestyle so that, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it's overly restrictive. And that's, that's where I think that the vertical diet shines and that it's really kind of, it, it's, it is a specific diet, but it also tells you, uh, because people demand that of me, my clients, if I, if I just told them, Oh, you know, eat healthy, eat the calorie deficit, you know, eat whole foods, they'd be pissed. They'd want their money back. You know, they'd, they'd be like, look, <laughs> you're the diet guy you know i got shit to do just right. tell me exactly what right. to eat that's that's what they demand tell yeah. me exactly what to eat that's all i all i need to know yeah you know i don't need to spend years studying nutrition to you know that's why i hired you <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> if i hire a guy to build a deck on my house i don't want him to tell me how to <laughs> you know to build it i, I just I like build the deck <laughs> you know? I, I yeah i don't need to know what you're doing just so i guess the short answer is i i think it's the future i think yeah. that um that uh it covers all of the bases in terms of of, uh, uh, of health, hormones, sleep, hydration, uh, blood pressure, blood sugar, uh, digestion, uh, and compliance, most importantly. Great. All right, Stan, where can people find you? Everything's Stan Efforting. StanEfforting.com is my website. At Stan Efforting is my Instagram. I have some YouTube content. Uh, Stan Efforting is the address there. Lots of the rants are very popular. People, I've spent a lot of time and energy uh, poured into my rants. People really enjoy them. A lot of free content. So uh, that's where you can find me. My vertical diet ebook is available at, um, at my website. And then we do have a meal prep company where we provide um, uh, meals that are low FODMAP and are made with bone broth. And so they're real tasty and they're easy on the stomach and digestion. That's the vertical diet meal prep. Uh, you can get to it through stanefforting.com or thevertical.diet.com. Yeah, I mean, there you go. You, you want to tell somebody to tell you what to eat, you can actually buy it too and just send it. Send it. You don't even have to cook it. It's ready for you. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, all right, guys. It's Joey Thurman. This is another episode of the Fat or Future Podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. 